Well, hello there, and thanks for finding us. I'd like to welcome you today to the Recycler Secret Podcast. Regardless if this is your first time or if you've been here since the beginning, it's my pleasure to engage your earballs, not your eyeballs. This podcast is an open and candid interview with an industry professional who specializes in recycling or a subset of materials management. During our time together, I hope to dive deep into the person, their organization, and most importantly, how to duplicate their success, which I broadly call the magic. Ladies and gentlemen, let's welcome today's guest. Ladies and gentlemen, this is your friend Jonathan Matthews back from a long pause. I've got a special conversation today in the tail end of this COVID crisis that's going on, at least of the lockdown period. Uh, now that we're through the initial hiccups, I wanted to get together with my good friend, Mike Sapo, and really talk about some of the dynamics that have happened in the last 60 days and talk about some of the lessons learned. Uh, Mike and I had a similar conversation a couple of weeks ago, and I tell you what, I was so fascinated by it. I wanted to duplicate it and uh, put it out there as a recording for you all. So, Mike, thank you for joining me. Oh, it's my pleasure. Awesome. So, Mike, the, the conversation that we had uh, a week or so started with, there's a lot of lessons that have been learned during this time frame. And, you know, the resiliency of the frontline workers and the solid waste and the recycling industries have been proven once again. Um, you know, we are one of those core essential services that really keep the world moving properly and, and create a sense of normal. Um you know, regardless if that's snowstorms or Arctic blasts or floods or, or whatever that is. But in this different scenario, in this pandemic that we've been in, we saw some different things. Um, and some of those were temporary suspensions of services so that the core service could be focused on. And can you talk about what that looked like in Detroit a little bit? Sure. And, and I, I don't want to let it go unsaid that this pandemic, like you just mentioned, reinforced a lot of what we already knew about the solid waste and recycling industry. And the, the, I, the word that comes to mind for me is grit. Um, you know, our workers, our people, uh, our trucks, our facilities, they operate when many people don't. And you know, whether it's snowstorms, Arctic cold, floods, and apparently even during pandemics, and I think that's a testimony to the people in this industry and the grit that they have. So I, I don't think we could say that often enough. Uh, but one of the things that we know to be true is that going into this pandemic, there was a lot of uncertainty. And it really required folks to do a lot of business continuity planning and think about how were they going to meet the needs of their customers and their communities while being protective of the employees and the families of those employees. And how were they going to put... Um, people in the street to make sure that you know, important services were accomplished while not really knowing what the future was going to bring. And so I think that one of the things that we certainly were able to um, identify was that 
it wasn't necessarily a one size fits all approach. Um, there were there are differences amongst communities, differences in regions, differences in in uh, customers. Uh, communities and customers have varying needs, and individual service units have different capacities and varying abilities to meet those needs. And so I think you know what we found in in our area anyway was that. Uh, a lot of the decision making initially came from the top down uh, with, you know, what we might call a one size uh, fits all approach, but I think uh, it transitioned to an understanding that a decentralized or distributed, distributed decision making approach uh, probably makes more sense in these types of fluid situations. Um, you know, organiza organizations often function best to meet local needs when they recognize, I think, as General McChrystal put it, uh, you know, organizations are a team of teams and allowing those individual teams to identify their capacity, identify their customers' needs and react accordingly uh, makes a lot of sense because it, it is very different. And we can take something as simple as yard waste as an example. Uh, you know, we've got some communities in Southeast Michigan that generate a lot of yard waste. Folks love their lawns and they love to bag their grass clippings and rake out their uh, gardens as early as possible. And they're generating a lot of material. Uh, and then there are other parts of, of not just the Detroit metropolitan area, but, you know, elsewhere within the state where yard waste isn't a big deal. And so the decision to suspend yard waste collection uh, that was done uh, by some haulers and not others. Um, I think partly was done based on customer needs, but I think it was partly done uh, based on uh, a one size fits all approach. And then as that um, began to roll out and as time passed, I think a lot of the organizations realized that um, there, there are opportunities here to give more local control to some of the hauling yards to meet the needs of their customers. And we saw that in, in, within our communities. Uh, and, I, and I think that ultimately was the best approach. Right. Uh, so so you, that, that, was, that was one of the things that I, I noticed sort of early on in, in the crisis. So you said a couple of things I want to pause on there, Mike. And, and one of them, um, before we get into the decentralization, was really the employee comment. You know, this circumstance had us all in a uncertain place and with the utmost certainty we wanted to protect our people and so we saw that in different ways across the country um, even across the state of Michigan and today there's still one materials recovery facility in the state of Michigan that's not open and they're basically saying well that we believe this is a non-essential service and and we're not going to open it. And that's created a lot of rifts in that particular market. But I think you're right. Uh, you know, the yard waste example was phenomenal. Um, and what we've seen in the marketplace where those facilities have stayed closed is a pileup of material indicating that residents aren't going to choose a different method. I mean, so for in yard waste, they're not going to burn it. And in recycling, a lot of times people aren't going to throw it away. They're going to hold on to it. Um, but I think the, the underlying beginning of this, if we go back to the first week of April, was we didn't know how this was going to infect employees. And, 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 and I say affect, not infect. Uh, we also didn't know at what rate it could possibly infect the employees. And 
I think the haulers and the MRFs in the solid waste industry landfill combined all have the same problem is as we've looked at contingency planning across the scope of years, it's always been about national disasters. Um, we've never had to focus as our own islands. So if you took out 60% of the staff at the MRF that you're responsible for, that MRF couldn't function just as a hauler couldn't function if you took away 60% of the staff and there was nowhere to backfill that from, right? Yeah, I, I think that's a good point. And I think, you know, just to even maybe back it up one step further, when you talk about not knowing how it was going to affect employees and, and how you know, the um, COVID might infect employees and you know, staff and families, I don't think I talked to anybody with any of the service providers with whom we work. And that's, you know, the big ones, waste management and Republic Services and GFL, and then smaller regional companies like, um, you know, ERG Environmental. To a person, their primary concern was, how do we keep our employees safe? And how do we keep our customers safe? And so to the credit, I think, of everybody that I spoke with, um, that was first and foremost in everybody's minds. And so then from there, it just flows out, what's the best way to do that while delivering services? And, you know, decisions in those circumstances are, are complicated and hard. And I think by and large, everybody did a pretty doggone good job. Um, and I think the willingness to be flexible over time I think also you know speaks highly of of the the organizations themselves and and recognizing that it was a fluid situation and decisions can be changed they can be reversed um, sometimes it was sloppy um, that's just the nature of of the, the circumstances in which we found ourselves correct yeah and so that gets back to that decentralization teams of teams you know it I think this was, you know, unlike, again, a natural disaster where you have uh, flooding or a hurricane or whatever that happens, that happens today and you decide what you're going to do moving on, where this pandemic and the effects and causes and, and what the scientists and the politicians were saying about how this was going to be transferred was super fluid in the first three, four weeks. And, and so, yeah, that decentralized conversation had to happen to allow people to, to move those balls. And, and as you said, great comment, it was sloppy at times. Um, you know, I know of communities that made a decision on Friday and by Monday they needed to go the other way just because something wasn't working correctly. And to a resident that looks like sloppiness, but to an organization that looks like protection and taking care of the most essential services. Um, yeah, and I'll, and I'll say this, you know, in looking uh, as I, you know, am prone to do like many people looking at you know, Facebook comments, social media comments, reading, reading stories, taking phone calls from residents, you know, I'll give residents a lot of credit too, in terms of they by and large recognize that all the decisions that were being made were being made, not only in difficult circumstances, but being made uh, with the best of intentions in mind, you know, B, 
being concerned about employees, being concerned about um, employees' families, being concerned about customers. And um, were the decisions they get made, do they always please everybody? No, we, we never please everybody. And, and uh, you know, people are creatures of habit and anything that causes them to have to change those habits when it comes to their trash and their yard waste and taking care of their lawns or their recycling, you know, that can be disruptive to people. But, you know, I, we were in brand new territory uh, and continue to be in new territory. And I think most of, for the most part, the people that I spoke with were you know, really understanding of that. And, and I think that that, uh, you know, speaks highly of, of, of the communities and, 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 and also really speaks highly, I think, of the service providers. It, it, it demonstrates that homeowners and residents have a recognition of the tough job that folks in the solid waste and recycling industry are doing. And, and they, and they know this, they, and they, they see them out there when they're stuck home in their driveways because they can't get out, but they see the garbage truck go by uh, when we have, you know, some snowstorm or when they, when they, you know, see that, uh, you know, they're home cleaning out their basements because there was a flood uh, and they see the garbage truck drop, garbage truck come by and pick up all the stuff that they set out the curb. They they recognize the importance of, of those service providers, and I think they appreciate it. Yeah, for sure. So one of the things that that we talked about on length in our last conversation was really how this disruption has affected the back channels, the secondary channels. So we produce material at the curb and at the businesses. And as all the businesses have shut down and everything switched to online billing and you stopped eating out at restaurants and those different supply chains were disrupted, you know, and when you shut down the MRFs across the country, there were certain states that shut down completely for a week or two that really put some hiccups in the market channels in terms of the mills. You want to talk about that? Yeah. Well, there's so many aspects of that, but you know, I think one of the things that this crisis demonstrated and, and, you know, those supply chains being disrupted demonstrates is, is, again, something that many of us already knew that recycling as an industry is an essential service and it's an important part of the critical supply chain. Uh, and I think this served to demonstrate that more officially and it could have been done quicker and more uniformly as you mentioned there are still some folks that are shut down because they're you know not they're more concerned about you know, certain things than others and, and and that's their right but it is an important part of the critical supply chain and we've you know obviously we've had businesses here in in Michigan that have you know spoke to the fact that they need feedstock to produce things like toilet paper and if we're going to have shortages in the retail settings because you know we can't provide certain services uh, you know those are the consequences that we have to live with uh, but uh, it also demonstrated you know a few other things it, it demonstrated that you know this ongoing trend in the industry towards tools such as parts and robotics and optical sorting and AI, whether it's the collection at the curve or processing of facilities, that trend needs to continue uh, because it's an important part of the resiliency and the strength of the industry and it's an important part of worker safety. And that's something that's, uh, I think, reinforced as part of this experience is understanding the importance of worker safety and, and continuing these trends towards um, you know, using technology to our advantage. 
but then the other aspect of this is, is just what you talked about. Um, when you have different facilities shut down, uh, it does disrupt the supply chain. And there are some critical links in there that end up being awfully darn important to not just our economy, but to the services, the products and services that we need for, for modern life. I mean, you know, we need Pratt to make cardboard boxes so medical supplies and food and sanitation supplies can be putting them in ship somewhere. And if Pratt doesn't have the uh, feedstock to make the necessary amount of boxes, then something's not gonna get shipped to some location that may need it very desperately. And so we're all interconnected in this. And so the degree to which we can take this experience and build greater resiliency into our systems and build, build in some cases, redundancies, I, I think we'll be better off for it. Let's, let's snag on that automation point that you made a minute there, because I think that's very important to reiterate to people, you know, um, not only have the industry, the hauling industry, you know, pushed communities to get away from bins and drop-off centers and to get more to curbside um, in terms of collecting manageable material and educating properly, but there's really been a push to automation in the last, you know, three to five years, and it's, it's really ramping up each year. One of the, you know, instructions that came out of this pandemic initially was, you know, we're going to pick up cart contents only where possible because that's the safest way to protect our drivers so they're not touching material. Um, and automation and recycling, not only in the cart at the pickup, but also in the processing is the same thing. That's the safest way to protect our people is by having a lot of that work done by the equipment and really having equipment operators versus tons of people producing labor um, just for the pure sake of having labor. What do you feel on that? Can you expand on that a little bit? Sure. Well, I think I think you're right. Um, you know, in so many communities, and a lot of the communities I represent, we're used to unlimited set out for trash. And I don't know that we're ever going to get it completely away from that. We may, and in some communities, I know that we've seen that. But uh, I think the more we can transition to a situation where the drivers don't have to get out of their vehicles and expose themselves to surrounding traffic. The less they have to expose themselves to touching the material that's out the curb, uh, the safer they're going to be. And, you know, we already know that, you know, cart collection was for recycling or trash is more efficient. And we know that it's less wear and tear on the drivers, but these other safety aspects of it, I think are really important for folks to understand whether it's, you know, the driver not having to touch stuff or the driver not having to expose themselves to traffic. Um, those, those are important components of this. And we for years have pushed recycling carts because we know that uh, one people love their carts um, and uh, they recycle more because they have more capacity um, mm -hmm. to have lids. So the material stays drier, uh, less exposed to other vectors like, uh, you know, raccoons and squirrels. Um, and uh, I think the same can be said for, for trash carts. Um, you know, people don't have the same 
their emotional connection to their trash cart, maybe that they do their recycling cart if they're an avid recycler. But I know I, for one, am a homeowner that, you know, came to really appreciate my trash cart. I was sort of reluctant in the beginning. I thought, oh, there's nothing wrong with my trash can and I don't really need that big old cart. And as it turns out, it's awfully darn convenient and it uh, keeps odors down and it uh, keeps the, the, uh, the vectors out of my trash cart but then it also you know makes it obviously a lot easier for the driver and that's something that i'm you know very empathetic towards is the the hard work that these guys have to do when they're out there lifting trash cans and it's not like they're just lifting mine if they're driving the route they're lifting six to eight hundred other of them that day and they're doing that five days a week and good for them but uh, if we can make it easier and safer and more cost effective in the process, then that's the direction we need to go. Yeah. And I, I think that fundamentally one of the aspects that a lot of people don't talk about when they, when they talk about automation is just that you've got a guy that's getting out of a truck 900 times a day on uneven terrain, sometimes gravel, sometimes curves, sometimes grass, you know, all different scenarios. And there's a lot of risk there. But additionally, the employees that are coming into the market space today don't want to do that work anymore. We don't have that desire for large manual jobs as an economy that we once did. And so it's getting harder and harder as an industry, the hauling industry, to keep those people engaged. And, and part of that automation is to turn a trash guy into a, an equipment operator, right? And if we have equipment operators, that longevity of employees is going to be much greater. And whenever you have that longevity increased, you have a guy who knows the route better. He knows the community better. He understands where the problem issues are. He can communicate with city staff and council better. And, and all of those fundamental aspects become stronger by keeping that employee in there longer. And, and automation is part of keeping that employee healthy and, and engaged for a longer period of time. I mean, the average trash guy on a residential route is roughly about eight to nine years tops before he has to go into a commercial truck or a roll-off truck or some other line of business because his body's just tired. After doing 800 stops a day for eight or nine years, you can imagine what that toll is, right? Just like automation is good for curbside collection in, in terms of you know, driver safety and efficiency, the same can be said for material recovery facilities. We, we see a lot of technology in these facilities now, optical sorting, magnets, eddy currents, designed to sort the materials uh, automatically and avoid having to have people touch them physically. Um, there's still a great deal of, of manual sorting that takes place. And I think the trend towards automation in these facilities is a good one because not only does it um, build in that safety factor that we're so concerned about, but it also allows facilities to be operational in challenging times. I mean, honestly, it's hard to get people to work in some of these facilities. It's, it's tough work. And not, every, not everybody's up for it. And the degree to which we can transition from having to find people that want to come in and do this really tough work to having automation 
do the work and then have, then find people to come in and take care of that equipment or to run that equipment. That's a much better job for somebody. And we can take that same person that, you know, might come in and do the manual work. If we can transition through training that person to be an equipment operator or someone that's responsible for maintaining that piece of equipment, that's better for them. That's better for this facility. And I think that's better for all of us in the long haul. Absolutely. And so, yeah, that's, that was a, a great follow through on that automation. I, I really appreciate that. You know, we, one of the other things that came out in this was when we transitioned everyone into this locked down state, we saw more, more material come to the curb. And some of that's the Amazon effect, right? Everyone's at home, they're buying stuff, it's getting shipped to them. Some of that is, you know, everyone's eating at home. So there's just more packaging that they're producing and they're not eating out at a restaurant and they weren't going out as much for fast food and they weren't, you know, having work, you know, in cafeterias for schools and, and, you know, workplaces. So we saw all of that material. We also saw a lot of people at home that now said, Oh, I can clean up that basement room or I can do those projects around the house. My wife's been getting after me at for a long time. Talk about the, the additional materials that you saw come out in the, in your marketplace over there. Well, there's two ways I can characterize it. I can, I can tell you just based on what the haulers have told me, what they've seen, um, sort of the anecdotal uh, characterization of it, whether it's with my own eyes or, you know, what I've been told. Um, but then the other is the numbers. And we don't have all the numbers yet. We're still, we're still going through those, you know, if I, if I tell you, for example, my April numbers, uh, it's all over the map. I've got some communities that had barely a discernible blip in terms of the increased amount of trash per household per day, uh, maybe 5%. I've got other communities that's well, that are well in the double digits. Um, likewise, I've seen some communities that had a big increase in yard waste, and I saw some communities that actually had a decrease in yard waste. And so it's really too early to tell what this is going to look like over a two or three month period. Um, I'd be anxious to get the May numbers uh, finalized and then look at April and May and see what those look like on a per household per day basis. Uh, so we could really see what happened uh, in terms of waste generation and recycling and yard waste setouts. But, you know, what you mentioned that all intuitively makes sense. People were at home and they're getting, they're doing stuff at home that they might've otherwise been doing somewhere else. And they had time on their hands to clean out the basements and the garages and do those extra projects. And so, yeah, a lot of that stuff gets set in the curb in an environment where we didn't necessarily have all the drivers available to deploy all the trucks we needed for all that material. So um, service, understandably, in some communities, you know, was a little bit slower than it might have otherwise been. But again, you know, most of the homeowners that I spoke directly with and read about and saw their comments on social media were understandable um, because of that. Uh, but it will be, I think, an extraordinarily interesting 
set of numbers to those of us that are numbers people that want to really dig into the, the numbers and look at generation rates. Um, I can tell you our material recovery facility in Southfield is seeing some really big numbers. Now, part of that is because of other facilities not being available. And so we're running. If another facility isn't, we're going to take up that slack. And we've been seeing some really high per day volumes. Some of that's probably organic uh, to to our communities as well. The bigger generation rates because folks are at home, but we'll know more um, as time goes by. Yeah, I think you know it's not really in our wheelhouse, yours or mine, but I think it'd be fun to talk about it for just a second. There's, you know, two subcategories of the solid waste industry, and that's the the thrift uh, thrift store model, the Goodwills and Salvation Armies of the world. And all of those facilities were, for the most part, shut down for 60 to 70 days in this. And so the material that traditionally would go there was either piling up in someone's house or, you know, was ending up in one of the other cycles, uh, whether that would be solid waste or bulky item at the curb or recycled if it had that capability. You know, it, it's interesting to see as those facilities have come back online, the the amount of just material that's getting deposited into that stream. And I'm sure you've seen it as you drove by them as well. Oh yeah, yeah, and it, that's really interesting. Um, you know, and we have in, in our nine communities we represent, we have a program called Simple Recycling. Uh, you may be familiar with it, some of your listeners may be familiar with it, but it's, it's an alternative to um, throwing stuff in the landfill that they might otherwise be able to put back into the value chain. Uh, we see this as a complementary service to donating to charitable organizations. Uh, we don't want to compete with charitable organizations. We want to compete with landfills. That's sort of the mantra of Simple Recycling. But two of my communities that I represent uh, were the first two cities in the country to pilot this program back in 2014 with Simple Recycling. And now it's, you know, uh, across all of our communities and across, uh, you know, the United States. Uh, but that service had to get suspended. Uh, and it was, it's a simple service. You put your used clothing in an orange bag and set it at the curb on regular trash day and the truck's going to run the same routes as your trash and recycling trucks. They're going to pick it up. But where they're going to take it is to one of the local resale shops. Well, during the shutdown, the resale shops are not available to take that material and they can't afford it just to take it and pile it up in a warehouse. So they suspended the service. Mm -hmm. And so it will be interesting to see, you know, once the resale shops open back up and simple recycling can resume that service, what that looks like at the curb. Are we going to see a big blast of material or did that material otherwise just end up in the trash? Um, probably a little bit of both. Um, and I think we're going to see the same thing with you know places like Goodwill and Salvation Army. I know we're going to see it uh, at the retail level with the deposit containers. That's a conversation that's ongoing about how to open that back up without overwhelming the capacity of both those retail settings and the first vending machines, but also the downstream processors. I mean, right now, shoe pan is probably starving for material that they would normally get um, but when they open back up they only have so much capacity and if we've all got a bunch of that stuff stored and we're just waiting for the storage to open back up so we can get our dimes um, there's going to be a 
big influx of material that's going to overwhelm the, the system. So it's going to it's going to require uh, some care and some patience, I think, uh, from a lot of folks. Yeah. And you touched on it there, the, the bottle bill that we have in Michigan. Uh, there was a, a, a webinar that was held yesterday, and Tom from Shupan made the comment that there today is 600 million returnables that are sitting out in the system, which is equatable to $60 million that have to come back in through the redemption processing centers. And there's only so many tubs and only so many semis that are going to carry that stuff. And it's, it's going to take time. And the interesting thing is Michigan, because the way that that bottle redemption program is built in the sheets, you know, it requires certain people in order to be able to redeem that. You just can't, you just can't figure out how to collect a whole bunch of cans and bring a semi trailer back somewhere. It, it, it requires a process and, a retail partner and a distribution partner, and there's got to be the players in that value chain. And uh, I know locally in my community, there's a uh, child youth program that's collecting cans, and they've got probably three semi loads worth of cans right now, but they don't have a way to redeem those yet other than going through a redemption model. So they've done half the work, but now they're going to have to figure out how to do it. And you know, the, uh, the conversation I had with one of the gentlemen at that nonprofit was, well, how are you going to do this? And he says, well, we're going to make it a child's job, you know, one of our students' jobs this summer <laughs> to just return cans. And that's going to be what they do for nine hours a day. And I said to him, I said, that's a great thought, but you can't tell me that a Myers or a Family Fair is going to allow one child or one person to stand in front of a machine for eight hours a day. They're not going to do it. Right. And there's only so much redemption capacity a store's allowed to take per day before they're going to shut that room off. Um, because again, it gets back to the tubs and the trucks. You got to be able to move that material once it's redeemed as well. Um, so it's, it's going to be interesting. Um, have you seen more aluminum coming through the MRF in this time frame? You know, aluminum is such a small portion of our stream that, um, it doesn't show up as, as, a, as a big number. Um, I'll, again, I'll know more um, when we get all of our April and, and May numbers in, and we can then compare material shipped to what we shipped a year ago. But there's going to be some lag because as that material comes in and the bales accumulate, it still takes a long time to, to accumulate a truckload. And we can we can ship you know six seven uh, truckloads of paper a day. Uh, but you know we're we're gonna do um, loads of aluminum far and few between just because so many of those uh, bottles and cans go back to uh, the retail settings and so we'll we'll know more when we get the numbers in so it, but I, I think obviously we'll we've seen some uptick uptick um, I can tell you I was on that same webinar and that inspired me to take the two old 18 gallon recycling bins of deposit containers uh, that I have. And, and dump them into my recycling carts that I set out by the street yesterday for collection. And so I consider my dimes donated to the Renew Michigan Fund. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you'll see a lot of that money transfer because some people will go to the store once and be like, oh, this is crazy. And they'll never go back until mm -hmm. this pandemic is over with. But so, Mike, I think we touched on some really good things today. And I just want to recap a couple of them. Automation at the Murph. And automation at the curb helps protect our people and, and bring them from 
workers to operators um, helps increase not only their safety and their mental capacity and their body capacity, but ultimately helps increase their earning capabilities by making them better people and better workers. Um, I think that was one of the things that the decentralized conversations were another thing that teams of teams um, it's important for us to, as something like this is the first time in my lifetime we've ever experienced a, a national crisis where we all had to make decisions based on the same general rules, but different economics and different cultures and different population bases, that we need to take that into more consideration next time and not just as a larger corporation, the, the waste managements and the republics of the world, um, you know, have to make decisions that protect their entire national programs, but, but they have to empower their teams of teams a little bit better next time, perhaps. Um, not saying that one way is approved over the other, but it's just a kind of a lesson learned here, right? Right, I agree. Uh, and then, you know, ultimately, we were fast in the beginning to postpone and shut down things in order to protect um, life, and, and that's important to do. Um, and that automation that we talked about as the first step in this conversation will help us as we increase that automation, hopefully eliminate some of those needs to shut down in the future because the automation has increased. Mm -hmm. I think we've seen a lot of that. I think we've also seen that people can work from anywhere um, as it relates to how we manage our teams. We don't, you know, in the hauling industry, at least there was a lot of outside morning huddles. There wasn't you know, large groups of gatherings, it was more getting to work than, you know, some of the politics of what a normal day goes on. And I think from the administrative role, we've seen a lot of people today are still working remote and doing a very good job of it, of getting things done and still accomplishing the things. But there's a need to be in front of people and, and to do those things as well. Anything else that I missed that you think is a, a key point that we should rehash before we we wrap this up today? No, I I, I guess I just would you know just one more time send out you know my gratitude to all the frontline workers and the grit that they've displayed through this entire crisis uh, because you know we wouldn't have the luxury of having this conversation today if we didn't have folks like that uh, out there uh, you know serving the customers that uh, have have the service needs. And so um, really grateful that, that we have, you know, employees that, that have that type of stamina and grit and uh, are willing to, to do what needs to be done under, under tough circumstances. So uh, I, I really appreciate that and appreciate, you know, the, the chance to have this conversation with you, Jonathan. It's, it's always awesome. Yeah, Mike, I appreciate it as well. And, you know, for all those who had the opportunity to listen to this, if you've liked it, go ahead and, you know, make a comment in iTunes, share it with a friend. It's important that people hear these things and kind of know the, the deeper side of the industry, I think. And, and that's what uh, this podcast is all about, is sharing these thoughts with you folks out there. So thank you very much.